Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 46 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome geologist Andrew Knoll, the Fisher Professor of Natural History at Harvard University. He received his PhD in geology from Harvard in 1977, and his honors include the International Prize for Biology, the Operand Medal of the International Society for the Study of the Origins of Life, and the Moore Medal of the Society for Sedimentary Geology. His 2003 book, Life on a Young Planet, from Princeton University Press, received the Phi Beta Kappa Award in Science, and his research focuses on the early evolution of life, Earth's environmental history, and especially the interconnections between the two. But today we'll primarily be discussing his new book, A Brief History of Earth, Four Billion Years in Eight Chapters, from William Morrow HarperCollins. Noel joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Andy, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks, Bruce. Glad to be here. First, uh, congratulations on your book. It covers such a, a large swath of time in scientific evolution. I'm sure that you had a difficult time deciding what to include. Well, in, in the first place, I had two motivations for it. In the first instance, I wrote it for myself because I've spent decades in the trenches working on specific aspects of the history of Earth and life. And so I just thought it was time to step back and see if I could piece together the whole narrative. Now, importantly, I wanted to write for the general public, you know, for my brother, my neighbor, the woman in the hardware store in town. And that means that the narrative has to be short and clear. And, and you're absolutely right. It's as important to decide what not to include just as much as it is what you do include. After doing this and after putting this all together, what puzzles you most about the earliest days of Earth's history when we were just regrouping from the moon-forming impact there some 4.4 billion years ago? Well, one of the, the problems is that this is a time period where we just don't have any rock. So that's like trying to reconstruct history, human history, where you have no records. And so while there are things we can say on the basis of just you know, first principles of physics and chemistry, there's a lot that's hard to know. And, and for me, the, the great question is, at what point does the Earth become habitable? We actually think that was probably pretty early, that it didn't take long after the moon-forming impact for Earth to turn into a planet where microbes could take root. But, you know, that's all surmise. There's still a lot to learn. As you write in your book, uh, you note that the, our planet coalesced some 4.54 billion years ago, but Earth's oldest known rocks date back only to about 4 billion years. And you write that older rocks must have existed, but largely the first 600 million years of Earth history constitutes our planet's dark age. Yeah, um, you know, the great thing about the Earth and the reason I do what I do for a living is that our planet writes its history its own history in the form of sedimentary rocks by looking at the chemistry and the physical features and biological features of those rocks we can actually reconstruct the past the bad news though is that while our planet writes with one hand it erases with the other 
So erosion is constantly removing that rock record. Uh, sometimes rocks are put under strong pressure and, and temperature, so they become metamorphosed, which means they're changed beyond recognition. And the further we go back in time, the more that the erasing takes the upper hand. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's not a crazy thing. It's just that uh, once you get back to 4 billion years, we've run out of the record. The rest has, is gone, as near as we can tell. To digress just a bit, what have the moon rocks told us or taught us about this missing 600 million years, or have they? Well, they, they contribute to it. I, I should say there's, there, there are two sources of information that have been really helpful. One is a, a particular mineral that we may talk about in a bit called zircons, right. which are the, these almost indestructible minerals. We have zircons that are older than 4 billion years that show up in younger rocks. And, you know, the way to think about that is, you know, if I go to a beach on the North Shore of Massachusetts, the sand grains along that beach are things that have weathered from the White Mountains and places like that in the, the form of the sort of spine of northern New England. And some of those grains are zircons that formed by geologic processes 400 million years ago. But they've now been eroded from the mountains, carried down to the beach, and they now are resident in sands that someday will become sandstones. And that's what happened in the distant past. In, in Australia, there's a place where there are three billion-year-old sandstones, but a small number of the sand grains that make up those sandstones are actually these very, very old zircons. And they give us some insights. Uh, the other real form of insight into Earth's formation and its consequences for our early history is meteorites, because those are pieces of the early... Uh, solar system that either have never coalesced into planets or that coalesced into small planet-like bodies that then differentiated and blew up. So we, we, it's not that we have no information, but you can't find a nice fossiliferous limestone. And so uh, you adhere to the, the, the lunar impact theory that a Mars-sized object, which uh, researchers now call Theia, yep. slammed into Earth uh, almost uh, within 100 million years of Earth's formation and then co uh, coalesced into the moon in what, what we know is a, you know, basically a lunar orbit, although the, the moon is over the, over the eons has moved outward. To, to right. I, I think that's the best explanation we have for the composition of the moon, where we have a fair bit of information. It makes sense in terms of what we think we know about just the dynamics of the solar system. So as near as I can tell, that idea, which was controversial 30 years ago, is now fairly widely accepted. The crustal composition of the lunar surface and the Earth's surface, are they surprisingly similar or are, are, are they more dissimilar than you would expect? Well, they're, they're similar in one way, and that is if you look at some of the particular elements uh, that are found both on in lunar samples and samples on Earth, they're very similar. So it does look like the uh, moon and the Earth have a common source for much of the materials that's, that's in them. 
Of course, what has happened that makes them different now is that the Earth has evolved over the last 4.4 billion years in ways that are very different from the moon. So, uh, you know, you will not find things like the granites you see in Yosemite on the moon just because it does not have that kind of internal history that made that kind of rock. To get granite, you have to well, have water, right? You, you, you need water and you have to take, it, it turns out just to back up that probably the early crust of the earth and a, a rock that's widespread on moon is something called basalt, which is the, the uh, rock of the crust beneath the seafloor. It's what you see when you go to Hawaii, things like that. And on earth, um, granites have been made by basically heating up that uh, basalt, uh, usually by sending it down back into the the interior of the earth again. And as that melts, it gives rise to a more granite-like material. So in, in a sense, and we'll talk about this later, that we have this dynamic system on the earth called plate tectonics, and that's responsible for much of what we see around us when we look at the physical earth and there's no evidence that the moon ever had anything comparable to that and so you write in your book that continents are made of crust containing quartz and feldspar minerals rich in sodium or potassium typified by the granite seen in the white mountains of new hampshire or the sierra nevadas dramatically incised in yosemite national park which you just mentioned a heavier elements like iron sank to the center of the earth, while minerals of magnesium, silicate, and other combinations of iron, aluminum, calcium, sodium, potassium, and silica formed an outer layer. Within the first 100 million years before the moon impactor, was the earth's surface just a magma ocean, or, or what was it like? Well, at, at one time it, it was. This is, you know... I think when many of us think about the primordial Earth, we're influenced by Walt Disney, and we see all these incandescent lavas over the surface. And <laughs> that actually existed, and it is called a magma Earth. It probably only existed for a few million years. And then on Earth, it started to differentiate. And as, as you said, one of the early things that happens in Earth history is that the planet melts. Uh, because there's so much heat from accretion and radioactivity uh, in the Earth. And when it does that, the heavy stuff goes to the center. So we have a core that's made largely of iron with some, some other elements with it. And that leaves then the surrounding area, most of which is what we call the mantle, uh, sort of if the, if the uh, core is like the yolk of an egg, the mantle is like the white of the egg, and that's rocks that have a lot of silica in it, all the, all the elements that you mentioned. And then, in processes that go on closer to the surface, that mantle itself begins to melt in an interesting way, because when it, when it heats up, not all the minerals melt at the same time, and so it ends up giving rise to Volcanic rocks that are actually different in composition from the mantle, and that's what makes the crust. So the crust is like the shell of the egg. It's very thin, but it is what, you know, not only we, what we encounter every day of our lives, but it is what we need to survive every day of our lives. So you write that in Western Australia, an unprepossessing outcrop of 
orange-weathered rocks called the Jack Hills Formation exposes sandstones and gravels deposited by rivers some 3 billion years ago. And the mineral zircon, zirconium silicate, forms a silica-rich igneous rocks crystallized from molten magma. Zircons have a remarkable property, you write. Yeah, it's, it, they incorporate uranium. And the, the, the really important thing is that uh, some types of uranium are radioactive and they will spontaneously decay through time to lead. Now, zircon is interesting in that as it forms, it can actually incorporate a little bit of uranium into its crystals, but not lead because it's the wrong size. The, the atom is the wrong size to fit in. So what that means is that any lead that we find in a zircon crystal got there through the radioactive decay of uranium. And so we can measure the amount of uranium and lead in those crystals. And we know from experimental work the rate at which uranium breaks down into lead. And because of that, zircons are a clock. And they are the best clock for calibrating Earth history. And you write that the oldest zircons yet found are 4.38 billion years old, right? Yeah, which is remarkable. That is to say that even though we don't have actual rocks of that age, we have these remarkably tough crystals that have survived since, you know, very close to the earliest events of our planet's history. So you also write that the chemistry of oxygen in the, zir- in the zircons also suggests that liquid water was already present 4.38 billion years ago, and thus Earth's hydrosphere is nearly as old as a planet. So in other words, you mean that that Earth already had a liquid water on its surface? Yeah, and that's consistent with uh, models that geophysicists have made. You, you can ask, you know, what controls the temperature at, at the Earth's surface? And even though we think of the primordial Earth as being very hot in the interior, very soon after Earth formed, it became the case that surface temperatures were determined by sunlight and greenhouse gases. I mean, today, if you want to know what the relative importance of Earth's interior, you know, the sun and greenhouse gases are in determining the temperature outside your house, it's the sun by a million to one. So very quickly, that early hot Earth starts to cool down as it does all of this water that was present as a sort of dense uh, vapor. It actually just, you know, precipitates out as rain, and we start getting oceans. And we know that because water will actually interact chemically with those zircon crystals in a way that actually leaves a very subtle but measurable chemical uh, signature in the crystal itself. So yes, Earth, Earth becomes a water planet very early. The sun was about a third as bright as it is today, yet because of these greenhouse gases, the surface of the Earth, not just related to the magma, but the surface of the Earth did not just freeze over in a snowball Earth because you had greenhouse gases uh, keeping the atmosphere pretty warm. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. Um, Earth would not be a habitable planet if we didn't have greenhouse gases. And the remarkable thing about them is that early on, when, as you said, the Earth, the sun was much dimmer than it is today, 
Uh, you have a lot of greenhouse gases. And then interestingly, as the sun heats up, the amount of greenhouse gases declines through time. And it really keeps the earth within this zone where there's liquid water present. And so that really acts as kind of a barometer for climate that has kept the earth habitable pretty much over its 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 uh, whole history. And are you saying that, uh, let's just pretend that the greenhouse, every, all greenhouse gases disappeared from Earth's surface. Are you saying that even though we are considered to be in the habitable zone on an average of 93 million miles from the sun, that if we took away the greenhouse gases as we know them, which are the subject of so much controversy and which we'll get to later on, are you saying that that the surface of Earth would be just incredibly cold? Yes, that, that's right. Um, absent the work of of warming the Earth that carbon dioxide and some other gases do, uh, this would be a very cold planet. And so we sort of have to differentiate between having enough greenhouse gases to make Earth a temperate planet, which it has been for a long time, and humans adding more greenhouse gases because... You know, if you don't change solar radiation, but you increase greenhouse gases, the Earth will get warmer. But greenhouse gases are not necessarily a bad thing. They've been portrayed well, as, you know, as a bug. I, I think champagne is a good thing, but too much <laughs> champagne is a bad thing. And I and I think you can use that principle for for greenhouse gases. They are, you know, on the scale of four billion years, absolutely necessary. On the scale of the coming century, they are a big problem. So, but perhaps most interesting and controversial, you mentioned that there are tiny flecks of graphite, a mineral made of pure car- carbon in these four billion year old zircons. You write in your book, could this be a scrappy signature of life? Well, it's one of the other interesting things about zircons is that, that as the crystals grow, they sometimes incorporate other materials from their surroundings. So there are a number of really interesting studies where people have, you know, looked very carefully at the chemistry and mineralogy of these little inclusions in the zircons. And that tells you something about, you know, the state of the mantle and that kind of thing at the time. A couple of years ago, a group reported something really quite remarkable. And that was this tiny kind of a one micron fleck of graphite in a zircon. And in a real tour de force measurement, they actually measured the, the amount of what are called different isotopes of carbon. That is just carbon that has, uh, you know, in particularly one case, an extra neutron. And it turns out that if you look at organic matter made by photosynthesis today, there's a very distinctive ratio of the two stable isotopes of carbon. Uh, you know, someone from another planet could look at your toenails and tell that you were uh, part of a biological carbon cycle just from your carbon 12 and 13. And interestingly, uh, this little fleck of, of carbon has a signature that's at least consistent with life. Now, before we pop the champagne course, cork and say, well, then there's life 4.1 billion years ago. One of the things we've learned just in the last decade or so is that there's very active carbon chemistry in the interior of the Earth. And so I don't think we know at the moment whether some of these 
just plain chemical processes in Earth's interior could give rise to that that same signature. So for now, it's absolutely tantalizing. It was a remarkable analytical tour de force, and we still have questions. And uh, this brings us back around to the crust. And you, and although the crust only makes up 1% of our planet's mass, it's the only layer we can observe and sample routinely. But as you just indicated, we do have good estimates on the interior of the of the planet. And some of those estimates indirectly come from zircons. That's right. So how, how do you use the zircons to estimate the makeup of the interior and the proportion and the ratios of the of the different elements in the interior. Well, what you, what you do is that when, again, as I said, that when zircons form, they will actually incorporate just very small parts of material from their surroundings. Diamonds can do the same thing. So diamonds, which are made, you know, 150 kilometers beneath the surface of the earth or more, they have things, you know, that make them uh, impure, which of course uh, jewelers don't like. But those impurities are samples of the Earth's interior. So in addition to being clocks, minerals like zircons actually provide samples of what the Earth's interior was like at the time they formed. And and are you referencing zircon, uh, uh, not zircon, but diamond inclusions? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Now, uh, diamonds tend to be younger than uh, 4 billion years, but... Uh, it's the same idea that they they get these included materials, and those are a gold mine because they're essentially free samples that come up to the Earth's surface for geological reasons that sample parts of the Earth that we cannot sample otherwise. So we're heading into June, which is wedding territory. For those couples who have not picked out their diamond uh, engagement rings, what kind of the best quality? Like if you were going to go into a jewelry store and you buy a, a one carat engagement ring, for instance, uh, tell the listeners where that ring likely originated <laughs> in the, the earth. Well, di- I can tell you where the diamonds originated. That's what I mean. That's origin- what, that, not, I don't mean <laughs> I don't mean the jewelry store, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the, 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 diamonds. the diamonds originate within the mantle. Okay, and and they are brought to the surface by a particular type of volcanic rock called a kimberlite pipe. And uh, so there are places famously in South Africa, but also in Siberia, in Australia, in Canada, and other places where these samples have come up to the surface. And, you know, they, they are mined in a very controlled way. And they, they give rise, yes, to jewelry quality diamonds, but the great majority of them are small things that are used for industrial purposes rather than going into jewelry. But how, from how, let, let's say someone's wearing, you know, a, a nice quality carrot diamond ring, not only are they wearing something that's incredibly old, I would assume, but the, it came from deep within the earth. How deep would it have come? I would say more than 150 kilometers, more than 100 miles. Good Lord. Yeah, no, no, it's they—they they really are messengers from the interior of the Earth, and you know, unless you're Jules Verne, you can't go to the center of the Earth yourself. So, it's having things like diamonds that help us, you know, get actual, if tiny, samples of that interior. 
And and these these diamonds had to form at extraordinarily high pressure. Yes, that that's right. It's it's hot down there. There's a whole lot of pressure, and that is what you need. We we can actually there are processes now for making diamonds, uh, manufacturing them, and that process really relies on having just incredible machines to put pressure on carbon. To my knowledge, the oldest evidence of fossilized evidence of microfossils on Earth probably come from what? The Pilbara region of Western Australia, uh, which date back to what, 3.8 billion years ago? 3.5. 3.5, okay. But then then in Western Greenland, though, there's some indication that there could have been microbial life 3.8 there, there uh, the 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 figure three point eight gets in my head. I don't know where that came from. I, yeah, no, that's 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 the right figure. I, I think the the thing is that at three point five billion years ago, these rocks that you mentioned from Western Australia and rocks of similar age from South Africa give us multiple lines of evidence that there was microbial life on on Earth. When you go back to 3.8 billion years ago, again, we find graphite <laughs> that is in metamorphosed sedimentary rocks, and it has the kind of isotopic signature we just talked about that's consistent with life. So it may well be that there was life already at 3.8 billion years. Um, it's just that our confidence in interpreting those records gets poorer as we go into the dim recesses of time. So the, the, the long and the short of it is that we really run out of a rock record to look at before we run out of evidence for life. What do you think? I mean, if you were just going to give an educated guess, do you think it's possible that we might have had life on Earth four billion years ago? Oh, easily, yeah. Microbial life might have formed within the first 300 or 400 million years of Earth's history. Absolutely. There's no reason why that, that shouldn't be true. And you know, to me, the remarkable thing is not so much that life might have formed early in our planet's history as the fact that it has actually been sustained continually for the last four billion years. That in and of itself is fairly remarkable. But then uh, it took two billion, two and a half billion years almost to, to have the great oxidation events and then the life as we know it today with uh, with humans uh, you know basically controlling the planet only came about within the last uh, million years when you look at this at the scope of evolution on our own planet with the possibility that there was some sort of microbial life within 2 or 300 million years of our planet's formation yet the sentient life that that we know as as uh, with homo sapiens at the very occurring at the very tail end of, of our planet's history. What's the lesson to be learned from that? Well, it, I, I, to me, the lesson is that, you know, when you go outside or take a walk in, in the forest or s- swim on a coral reef, that everything you see around you and, and things that you don't see, like the oxygen in the atmosphere, is something that has accumulated through time over tremendously long intervals of time and yes the the human moment in earth history is remarkably recent um the the oldest evidence of our own species homo sapiens is about 300,000 
years old. So now we're talking hundreds of thousands of years rather than billions. The first evidence for humans that we can say they have culture and sophisticated tools and things like this is more like 45,000 years. First agriculture, 10 or 11,000 years. And the world that we take for granted, a world that in many ways started to come into being with the Industrial Revolution, is only a couple hundred years old. And, and so I always think about people who are trying to, in, in something like SETI, where people are trying to uh, detect signatures from intelligent life in the universe, that here we live on a planet that has probably been a biological planet for nearly all of its history, yet the kind of signatures that SETI is looking for would not have become apparent on the Earth until the 1900s. So you uh, quote the nature writer John McPhee that the most incredible, if he had to write one sentence that he thought was the most incredible fact about Earth, was that marine fossils can be found at the top of Mount Everest. Well, it, it is kind of a remarkable thing if you think about it, because we know how the kind of rocks at the top of Mount Everest, limestones, form. They form in the oceans when organisms that have skeletons die and sink into those limestone sediments. They become fossilized. So everything we see at the top of Mount Everest began its life in the ocean, and now it's, what, 29,000 feet above sea level. So that tells you something about the very active state of the Earth's surface. And who actually got those those fossils <laughs> at the top of Mount Everest? Do you know, I, I don't know who, who did that. Uh, there was a husband and wife team named Brad and Barbara Washburn who were the first to actually map Mount Everest. Uh, there is continuing geological work, I think mostly by Indian and Nepalese geologists, but I, I can't tell you who was the first person to say, oh my God, there's a fossil here. And you note in your book, and uh, you write in the 17th century, when Nicholas Steno, court physician to the Medici family, recognized glossopetre, tongue-shaped stones that weather out of the Tuscan hillsides as the teeth of once living sharks. Steno reasoned that as the sharks died and decayed, their teeth settled into sediments on the seafloor. And accepting this, the discovery of shark teeth in the hills above Florence meant that either the sea was once higher than it is today or the rocks that formed the hills had been lifted up above the sea. I assume it's the latter. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Steno in some ways is, uh, I, I think he's a hero. And I must say that, you know, the older I get, the more I'm interested not only in what we know, but how we've come to know it. And Steno plays an important part in the history of thinking about fossils because he was one of the first people to really recognize that these structures that we see in old rocks not only look like biological artifacts, but in fact, they are the remains of once living organisms. That wasn't obvious to people for 2,000 years before Steno, but because he the story is really that uh, a fisherman off the coast of Tuscany netted a giant shark and Steno was asked to dissect it. And as he dissected its head, he found these 
teeth. And he says, oh, my God, I've seen these teeth before. These are like glossopetri. And he then reasoned that these so-called glossopetri in the hills above Florence were actually the remains of sharks as were once alive. They died, their teeth accumulated in the sediment. And as you said, it was then uplifted by geologic processes. So that was a, a major step in the mid-1600s toward thinking in what we would today regard as a modern way about fossils. Uh, you're right. The German meteorologist Alfred Wegener noticed that if we could close the Atlantic Ocean, the nose of Brazil would snuggle nicely into the bite of West Africa while eastern North, uh, North America would nestle cozily against the, the Sahara. And so perhaps the continents were not fixed in place, which jives right with uh, what we're discussing about finding marine fossils on the tops of these mountains and in the Tuscan hillsides, right? Yeah, uh, and again, Wegener is one of, I think, the great heroes of, of the Earth sciences. Uh, you know, what got him going was probably something that many kids see on a rainy day when they look at an atlas, and that is you could actually close the Atlantic Ocean and the continents on either side would fit together pretty well. And so Wegener was audacious enough to suggest that the continents actually move. And what actually causes mountain building, the way that those fossils got 29,000 feet above sea level on, on Mount Everest, was when continents collided. Uh, it's fair to say that was not a popular point of view. In, in the he, His book was written in 1915, but for decades after that, many people maligned that view. But in the 1960s, using tools that were now available for studying the ocean floor, it became pretty clear that when you look, you know, if you could drain all the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, you'd see a mountain range running down the center of it. And that mountain range is actually producing new ocean floor all the time. It basically uh, produces about an inch or so of new ocean all the time. So slowly, it's pushing North America and South America and Europe and Africa apart. And so that led to a whole new way of thinking about the dynamics of the Earth called plate tectonics. And that now provides our first-order understanding of the physical features of the Earth, why you have mountains in the Rockies, why it's flat in Kansas, you know, why you have this mountain range that goes from the Pyrenees through the Alps to the Caucasus and on to the, to the Himalaya. It's because the Earth's surface is moving. Seafloor is being created anew, and that means if... The Earth isn't getting larger, and it isn't. It has to be being destroyed. And we know those are places where called subduction zones, where seafloor basically, like a conveyor boat belt, just goes down into the interior. Uh, you can usually find the signature of those because there are volcanoes and earthquakes. So the, the fruit of Wegener's sort of audacious hypothesis eventually was to have a, a new and powerful way of understanding the physical features of our planet. And give us a, a, a nice parenthetical definition of plate tectonics for the listener. We've discussed it on the podcast, but for those who didn't 
hear that earlier. Uh, give us a, like a nice parenthetical definition. Yeah, plate tectonics occurs, as I said, because at a number of places around the world, new seafloor is being created, and there are other places in the world where old seafloor is being destroyed. And basically, the continents sort of sit passively on these plates. The plates are, de are defined by the boundaries where either new crust is being created or it's being destroyed, or there's a couple of places where two plates just slide past each other. And all of the mountain building events that we see are either because two continents collide, so famously India broke away from Africa and other southern continents and moved north and collided with Asia, and that gives us the Himalaya, um, the Appalachian Mountains, which are now old and small, but those were once high mountains formed by the collision of North America and parts of Europe and, and Africa. So it really is this conveyor belt on the surface that occurs because of the creation of new crust and the destruction of older crust. And do these plates, uh, we sometimes hear them described as floating on the mantle itself. And, you know, they're, they're, are they actually floating on the mantle or is that an overstatement? No, they, they, they are. And the plate consists of the crust and a rigid bit of mantle underneath it. And so, yes, they, they are buoyed up by the mantle underneath it. Um, and it is actually the convection of, you know, heat-induced convection of mantle materials that gives rise to the sort of plate structures we see at the surface. So, again, just to, to make a long story short, what we see at the surface and what really defines the physical features of the Earth that you see when you travel, everything from mountains to volcanoes to earthquakes... All of that is driven by Earth's internal heat engine in the mantle. And the interesting thing uh, is that uh, that we wouldn't really have an idea about the sea floor sp spreading. Uh, the during World War II, you mentioned that a sonar designed to spot enemy submarines revealed networks of mountains and trenches in the deep sea. Yeah, no, it really did. I mean, before World War II. Humans had been sailing in boats across the ocean for thousands of years, and we had literally no idea what the seafloor, the deep seafloor, was like. There have been a couple of expeditions in the late 1800s where they dredged up some sediment samples from the deep sea, but we really didn't have a detailed understanding of what 70% what of the Earth's surface looks like. And so you're right, there was a... a geologist at Princeton University named Harry Hess, who was commissioned to actually run these sonar programs uh, in the Atlantic Ocean during World War II. And, you know, the goal was not to discover submarine uh, mountain ranges, but rather to detect German submarines. But in fact, they found a submarine uh, mountain uh, range. And then later, it was shown that if you looked at the age of the ocean crust on either side of that that ridge system, you know, it was very young right by the ridge and got older and older and older as it went toward either North America or Europe. 
We know that uh, plate tectonics is important for recycling carbon from our atmosphere, uh, and it does it through subducting the sea the, the seafloor and, and the carbon literally back into the into the the crust and mantle. So without this active subduction of the carbon, we would have a lot more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere than we already do, regardless of whether or not there was anthropogenic uh, climate change. Well, actually, let's think about it this way: if we if if let's trace a a, a atom of carbon and it, it will let it begin in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Okay, that then gets fixed by let's say photosynthetic algae in the ocean, and then you know they may get eaten and return it to the, the CO two to the atmosphere and that. But some of that, about one percent of that material that's made by those algae will end up on the seafloor and get buried. So that's material that has gone directionally, started in the atmosphere, and ends up in sediments. So in some ways, the real problem without plate tectonics is that that's a one-way street, and it will slowly just pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and bury it in sediments. So what plate tectonics does is keeps the machine from running down because as you said some of that material that's in in sediments will be you know drawn down into the earth's interior co2 will bubble off and come up in volcanoes and that will complete the carbon cycle in a way that helps sustain you know co2 for photosynthesis and greenhouse gases literally over billions of years in our solar system we believe that earth is unique in having plate tectonics. That's absolutely correct, yeah. I actually did a, a, a feature article uh, several years ago for Sky and Telescope on the connection between intelligent life on Earth, i.e. Homo sapiens, and, and of course there are cetaceans which are intelligent. You, know, there, you have all forms of intelligence on Earth, not sure. just Homo sapiens, but we consider our, ourselves intelligent. And uh, so we're here to question our existence. And, and one mark of intelligence is the ability to, to question one's existence and to study philosophy and to study civilization. Whether or not we do a good job of managing the planet is another, another situation, another story. What, do you, it, it, what is the link between the rise of, the evolutionary rise of intelligence as we define it and plate tectonics? I, I guess I would say that plate tectonics, uh, as I outlined, is nature's way of renewing the Earth's surface, getting CO2 back from the Earth's interior to the Earth's surface, and that. So plate tectonics plays an important role in ensuring that the Earth has been habitable since life first began. I, I don't think there's anything that plate tectonics did you know, some Thursday that said, okay, now humans are possible. <laughs> but in the long run, uh, you know, without plate tectonics, it's hard to see Earth having the large complex biosphere that it has. And, and you know, that's consistent with what we see when we look at other bodies in our own solar system. You know, we have no evidence of life elsewhere in the solar system. There's a couple places, you know, some of the watery moons of Jupiter and Saturn where there might be small amounts of microbial life, but nowhere else in the solar system 
has life become a kind of planet-defining set of processes? And that owes a debt to plate tectonics. And given its rarity in our own solar system, when you think about extrasolar Earths, what do you think? I mean, do you think without plate tectonics, there may not be intelligent life? Well, that's maybe a little farther than I'd, I'd be willing to go. Um, I, I guess, let's say that's true. Then, as you said, Earth is unique in this star system. So that may, maybe that's trying to tell us that in, you know, any solar system around any given star, there might only be one planet that, you know, will be capable of generating complex life. And let's say that only one in a million stars will have a planetary system that's capable of generating uh, intelligent life. But since, as Carl Sagan always told us, there are billions and billions of stars, it, it, it's hard to imagine that there isn't someone else out there. Uh, you, you, know, you may know this famous quote from the physicist Enrico Fermi, uh, Fermi's Paradox, where he said, it's hard to know which is the more remarkable thought, that we're alone or that there's lots of intelligent life out there. And we, we just don't know which is, which is correct. So let's jump back to some microfossils, and uh, this is an, uh, a site on Earth that uh, I think you have personally visited. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site known as Mistaken Point along the yes. rocky coast of southeastern Newfoundland. And yes. you write that late on a rare clear afternoon when low-angle sunlight throws the surface features on ancient beds into sharp relief, You'll never forget the site. Mistaken Point deserves its World Heritage status. It's one of the most remarkable snapshots, in this case, of early animal life found anywhere on Earth. So when you go to southeastern Newfoundland, there are these spectacular coastal cliffs, and they're, they form this like stepwise pattern where the tops of the steps are actually what geologists would call bedding planes, that is the surface of ancient beds. And these surfaces formed, at least some of them, when there was a biota there living on the seafloor, and then there was volcanism that basically just buried everything exactly where it was living. Uh, I, I do call it a paleontological Pompeii, and that's kind of, kind of the idea. Now, some of those beds have been exposed over areas, you know, half an acre, you know, they're, they're large areas. And what you see is literally thousands of six inch, 12 inch fossils that populated that seafloor. And, and what's, so first of all, it's amazing that you can actually see a snapshot of life as it existed at a moment in time, 565 million years ago. And then what you see is utterly alien. It is very different from anything that, you know, you would routinely look at and say, yeah, that's an animal. Uh, we think they are early animals, but they are extinct forms of animal life that existed before animals had limbs and could move, before animals had mouths and digestive systems. Uh, and there are there are simple animals like this today, um, but this was a, a remarkable biota 
that was found all over the Earth between about 570 and 540 million years ago, and then you pretty much never see it again. Mm. And uh, although the the asteroid impactor that precipitated the demise of the dinosaurs some 66 million years ago gets the headlines, you write that, in fact, the largest known mass extinction occurred not at the end of the Cretaceous period, but rather 252 million years ago at the close of the Permian period when more than 90% of marine animal species disappeared. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, a remarkable thing. It, just to back up, um, over the age of animals, you know, which is you know, a little more than 500 million years long, there are five times during that interval when a majority of all the species on Earth disappear in a short time period. That's by definition what a mass extinction is. And as you said, the largest one was 252 million years ago. And uh, again, I've had the privilege of actually being at the sort of tight section for this in China. And it's, it's really quite extraordinary because you start climbing this cliff and it's full of fossils that lived in late Permian oceans, you know, before 252 million years ago. And then you get to a point where you can put a knife blade and they all disappear and they never come back again. So it's, it's a remarkable event. And we now think that we understand what caused it. And it was massive volcanism. Uh, and you might say, well, what, what do you mean by massive volcanism? Uh, there are volcanic rocks exposed and in the you know, subsurface of Siberia that tell us that there was a volcanic event that spread about two kilometers of lavas over an area about the size of Australia. This is volcanism literally a million times larger than anything ever experienced by humans or our close relatives. And then what's interesting to me about it is, well, why does that volcanism cause all this extinction? Well, it's because those volcanoes spewed out a lot of carbon dioxide. They caused global warming. They caused the pH of oceans to decline, so-called ocean acidification. They caused a loss of oxygen in the ocean. That is to say that what massive volcanism did 252 million years ago with terrible biological consequences is exactly what humans are doing through industrial processes in the 21st century. You write at the end of A Brief History of Earth a very poignant passage, quote, so here you stand in the physical and biological legacy of four billion years. The world you inherited is not just yours. It is your responsibility. What happens next is up to you. Yeah, um, you know, again, one of my reasons for writing this book, and I, I say in, I think, the, the prologue to the book, that of all the things that have happened in the 20th century and 21st century in terms of, you know, population declines, extinctions, ocean, the world getting warmer, all this kind of thing, to me, one of the most remarkable things is how widespread indifference is. On, on the part of, of people. And so one of the reasons for writing the book was to put what we know is happening. This is, this is not conjecture. This is measurable things. We know what is happening to the Earth. We can place that in the context of our planet's 4 billion year history 
And, and I think there really is a responsibility. We live in the legacy of four and a half billion years of the evolution of our planet and its life. And whether you like it or not, we are the stewards of the planet. And we can do good for the continued welfare of people in the 21st century, or we can do harm. And so I, I just hope that more, more and more people will describe or will be moved to do good while there's still a chance to, you know, ameliorate some of the things that are going on in the 21st century. So what should we be doing um, in terms of understanding Earth's formation and Earth early history that we aren't? Well, I think people are doing a lot of the right things. Um, I, I think when you look at science in general, that often new ways of looking at science come up when somebody invents a new machine or a new way to measure something or new, new types of measurements, and those open up all sorts of new questions. So there, there's a lot of good work going on now on, on, on the early Earth. Um, one of the questions that I talk about in the book is when did plate tectonics begin? It's not clear that Earth has had plate tectonics from the get-go. But one of the ways you could actually ask about that comes from the fact that when lavas in particular form, if they have iron minerals, particularly the aptly named magnetite, which is magnetic, that those crystals as they form will actually record the position of Earth's magnetic field at the moment of their formation. And actually, one of my friends at Harvard has recently shown that two different parts of northern or Western Australia three and a half billion years ago did seem to have been moving away from each other over tens of millions of years. And so, you know, this is something people have argued about for 50 years, but now with the right sensitive instruments and measurements, we can start, you know, pulling away those veils and uh, really understanding things. So I, I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm not critical of, of what's being done. They're hard problems. And I'm just glad that there's a whole new generation of earth scientists who are tackling them. So finally, what puzzles you most about earth's evolution? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think, the story of oxygen, to me, is at the center of everything. Um, oxygen is kind of a timekeeper for evolution because there are organisms, mostly bacteria and their cousins called archaea, that live in the absence of oxygen. Some of them are even killed by oxygen. So they populated the Earth for a billion years before there was ever any oxygen accumulation. And then about 2.4 billion years ago, we have evidence that small amounts of oxygen are starting to accumulate in the atmosphere and oceans. And that has real consequences for new forms of life. But then that intermediate state of the world with, say, you know, maybe a percent or so of modern levels of oxygen in the atmosphere, that persisted for nearly 2 billion years. And then it changes again. And interestingly, Oxygen goes up and starts to look more like the modern world about the time we first see large animals that would need a lot of oxygen. So it looks like there is this sort of coevolution 
between the environment and life. And while we understand when these events happened, I hope that uh, over the next day, decade or so, we will understand better than we do today what really drives them, what, what combination of influences from the physical and biological Earth cause these episodic revolutions in you know, Earth's surface environments and therefore in the diversity of life. Andy, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure. Um, I was once told that I was eminently Googleable. So if someone <laughs> wants to contact me, uh, I would invite them simply to send me an email. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Andrew Knoll, thanks for giving us a better understanding of our planet's four billion year history. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>